was there a time where you were like, I don't want to just clean and assist. Like I, you know, or I want to take that assisting to the next level. Um, so I think it was approached the other way. Hey guys, Kat here from Standing Stone and welcome to our Standing Stone podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for listening. Um, If you followed along with our podcasting journey in the past, you may know that we had our original podcast titled YAWA, which stands for You Ask, We Answer. And we are taking a little bit different feel now and started a new podcast where Ethan and I will still get on and have conversations together, chatting about hunting, training, dogs, um, and just anything that we're interested in sharing with you, as well as we're going to have some more guests on like Jessica today, where we get to share some really interesting topics um, and other perspectives on those topics with you. So like I said, if it's your first time tuning in, thanks for listening. um, And we'd appreciate you checking us us out on Facebook, Instagram. We have a YouTube channel as well as our online dog training community on Patreon. If you're struggling with um, some dog training at home that you need some guidance, we're there for you. And if you look for things that you need for home for training your dog, check us out at standingstonesupply.com. So today I want to talk with Jessica Lemon. She is our head dog trainer here at Standing Stone Kennels. I want to share a little bit about her journey with us um, and the evolution of her position here, as well as have her share some insights from a dog training perspective that um, I don't think everyone always has. So now that I've said a little bit about Jess, I want her to introduce herself, and then we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of, so you want to be a dog trainer. I'm Jessica, and I'm a 35-year-old mom of three. I have a 14-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a soon-to-be 9-year-old, so pretty busy with kids. Um, I also keep quite a few animals. I have rescued dogs for quite a long time. Um, I really didn't get into purebred dogs till I started working here. I currently have seven dogs at home. Um, that's including two of my dogs that I do have here from Standing Stone Kennels, um, Doc and Susie. Um, between the seven dogs, I have 15 years old all the way down to three months old. So quite a collection of different dogs. I keep um, also some farm animals as well. Um, rabbits, chickens, pigeons. You and Ethan with your pigeons. Yeah, I tell I you like what. Pigeons. <laughs> um, so pretty busy, pretty busy overall. Um, lots of animal husbandry. Takes a lot to keep a home going and keeping uh, keeping up with animals. So It definitely does. Live animals uh, takes it to a whole nother level as a responsibility. Not only when you have children that are live animals that need caring for as <laughs> yeah. well, which we understand and know about, but those live animals um, also take a lot of time and care. Um, so Jess has been working for us at the kennel for five and a half years now. Um, it'll be six years in December, which is a a long time. Uh, we've been in business for ourselves now, um, for 10 years. So she's been with us for longer than half of that, which is, uh, really, really awesome since we moved here to more of the South central Kansas area at First, we were up in Northwest Kansas. So we've moved down um, into a different location, and that's where uh, that's where we picked up Jessica at. And she's been a great addition to our team. So um, 
I want to talk about what her original goals were when she applied for the kennel position that we were hiring for. And back in the day, we were looking for a kennel attendant. That's what the job listing was for. We weren't looking at that time to hire on a trainer. We just needed some extra help um, caring for the dogs here at the kennel, uh, lightening Ethan and my load a little bit so that we weren't out there 24-7, 365. We could take a break um, every once in a while when we needed it. So why did you want to apply here in the beginning? Um, So initially it was for a change of pace. I had worked in a call center for going on almost seven years um, as an account executive for debt collection. So I did pretty well with that. Um, Pretty productive. I had a lot of incentives. It's a pretty, um, you're motivated by money to do that work. So it's pretty grueling and emotionally tolling. And I knew that I needed a change of pace. So leaving that position, I knew I was looking for something that would feel a little bit more wholesome. Um, I left that job looking for either a position with children or animals. And this was the second job I applied to um, and the first callback I had. So initially I was (laughs) I was initially just looking for um, something that would feel um, feel good to my heart and soul. And and it wasn't debt collection. That's for sure. Yeah, I. I don't know how you did that for seven years. Um, I would feel very depressed after a long day of hangups and yeah. not meeting goals and things like that mm-hmm. that are that are set for you. Um, kind of the opposite of a rewarding, enjoyable, make your heart happy type of job. So um, kudos to you, though, for making it seven years with with that position. So hopefully we get her for at least seven years, <laughs> if not longer. Um so your original plans for applying were just to get involved with something that made you happy. I know you have volunteered at the zoo as well as like another opportunity to, I guess, give back and share and, you know, give um, your time to something that you feel is worthwhile and rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I volunteered at the zoo most recently here in town. And then um, before that and before the call center, I had uh, volunteered at the animal shelter. So I knew um, I kind of have a knack or a desire to kind of be involved with animals. So it just kind of um, fell into my lap. It was the right, right, right job at the right time. And and it's been a great fit. Um, I know that your love for animals, I don't want to say gets you into trouble, but you definitely have uh, rescued a couple <laughs> of our kitties. Yeah. Um, every time I think that having a cat around the kennel would be a great idea, it ends up not being such a good decision. And the, the kitties have all been safe so far, and it just ends up being too big of a distraction for the dogs when they're in training sessions. Or I start fearing for some of those kitties' lives. So I say, anybody looking for a kitty? And Jess has volunteered on a number of occasions to take on one of those cats. Um, I know Aiden, our son, would love if we could keep a kitty because when he goes to grandma's house, he loves seeing the kitties. But I just know with the number of dogs that are in and out of the kennel, not so much our personal dogs, but the inning and outing of random dogs at the kennel, if I had a cat that was an outdoor kitty which it would be being out in the country. Uh It would be at least outdoor and indoor, but um, definitely spending most of its time outside. And I don't want that experience, not only for myself to see a kitty, you know, maybe 
not chomped. Not chomped, yep. <laughs> um, or the kids to see that happen. Yeah. I mean, it is part of life, but it's something that if we can avoid it here, we're we're going to. So um, when and why did you decide that you wanted to do more here at the kennel? Because if you want, why don't you take a step back first and describe kind of what you were doing here at the kennel as your position in the beginning when we hired you on? So I lovingly referred to it as like dog babysitter and janitor mixed together. So it was a lot of upkeep of the facility and the equipment, making sure stuff's getting on chargers and going back where it where it belongs so that when the next shift, you guys, because it was just you then, comes in to train, well, everything's kind of staged and ready to go. Um, it was also making sure that the that the facility was clean. Um, dogs really can be greasy and dirty. And um, a big part of the facility, kind of what makes things different here, I think, is how clean and attentive we are to that. Um, so so I'm kind of getting off track. But, but basically just taking care of the dogs. So it was a lot of in and out because our um, let out schedule really kind of dictates the day. So we need to make sure that dogs are going out quickly, being effective, going pottying, um, making sure everyone's getting medicated, fed, that sort of stuff. So. Yeah. And um, I guess our facility, if you're listening in, is set up a lot differently than most training or boarding facilities in that the dogs don't have access to indoor outdoor time whenever they feel like it. They get let out on a schedule, on a routine where they get let out first thing in the morning to go out in a fenced area where the dogs um, get an opportunity to potty, get a drink, socialize a little bit, um, and then get back inside and the next group of dogs go out. We have those dogs um, that get along well, grouped together so that we're letting probably, I don't know, typically four to eight dogs out at a time together to go potty and then come back in and then the next group. So it is pretty labor intensive in the standpoint of those dogs need let out every two to three hours, I would say. Um, and other kennels, you know, the dogs let themselves out or they don't figure out how to let themselves out. And then they're going potty either on a concrete pad or um, even in their own space just because they don't know how to use an indoor, outdoor doggy door. Um, and then there's a lot of mess to clean up in that sense. Um, not to say that accidents don't happen in the facility. I mean, right. But we're not hosing out runs. We're not pressure washing daily. We're right. doing yeah. that once a week to make sure things are maintained and clean and disinfected. But the expectation is the dogs do hold it indoors. Mm -hmm. Don't go potty in their space because the majority, um, almost all of the dogs that come in for training are people's family dogs and pets that live in the house with them. So, uh, yeah, you definitely started out um, caring, babysitting those dogs, uh, making sure they're getting along scoop and, and poop. scoop and poop. I mean, I still scoop poop to this day. I'm out letting a dog out poop scoop um, because we do try and keep our kennel really clean. Um, the health and the well-being of the dogs is our number one priority. Um, and um, feeding those dogs and communicating with us if any of them were not feeling well, not eating, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, Reading if groups are getting along, if a certain dog's causing an issue in that group. Um, that's kind of the transition. So being able to read dogs um, comes naturally to some people more than others. Um, and it also was asked, like, well, how did you get into the training part? Well, if you are taking care of dogs, training is happening 
whether you realize it or not. Um, because as you guys say, anything a dog's doing in their conditioning. So a having a handle on a pack of dogs is really where the training starts before you actively get into training, um, which is something I talk to the new girls about. Like, even though you are not a trainer, you are training these dogs, um, whether you want to be or not, or they're training you one of the way. Yeah, there's that passive obedience understanding where you're at least maintaining mm -hmm. expectations, right. maintaining training that's already been um, laid down through recall, um, healing, just impulse control, waiting to get out of their kennel run, waiting to be fed, things like that. So there is a lot of that passive training. And um, I would say you even hit on it a little bit too when you're like setting up the next shift or us as trainers for success in a sense that having training equipment prepped and everything, because when you've got a lot of dogs to take care of and work with, being as efficient as possible so that you utilize that time to the best of your ability mm -hmm. to get your goals accomplished is important. Yep. And you saw a need for that. And you've always been really good at reading dogs, um, but also reading the situation and looking and taking that initiative to say, how can I make this process better? What could I do to assist? And that's kind of, I would say, um, we started just saying, hey, Jess, now that you're here, now that you're available, walk along with us and reset birds. Or, hey, throw e-collars on these next three dogs mm -hmm. um, just to help that flow and the efficiency happen. And I want to find out from you when you felt like your goals and what you wanted to do at the kennel changed? Um, so I think it was kind of hard for me to let go of cleaning. So I would assist. Um, I remember specifically being in the old kennel, um, Ethan being like, are you training? Are you cleaning? Um, so we would take time to train the dogs and then very quickly at the very end, try and come and clean everything. And we do have a night shift attendant and it was kind of addressed like, well, that is why there is also a night shift helper. Like just focus on what we need you to do. Um, so the little things matter. So collaring dogs appropriately, um, having it, I mean, I mirror really well. So watching you guys put a collar on and the strap facing one way and the indicator light facing out, um, all of those little things, I think, is how I started to mimic doing things what I would call the right way, um, is just observing why we're doing things that way. And then having the verbal feedback. I mean, um, not everyone's as lucky to have both you and Ethan basically right on top of you be like, that collar's too loose. Or <laughs> That was coming from Ethan, <laughs> definitely coming from Ethan. I was more like, hey, Jess, this collar isn't on quite right. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, um, mimicking what we were doing, being very observant, which yes. is something yep. that you are exceptional at yep. because being observant and not only seeing with your eyes, what's happening, but applying it to principles and things that you're learning is what allows you to read dogs. So you watch a dog do something and then you ask yourself, well, why are they doing that? And that's where it comes in reading the dog and yep. understanding yep. why we're doing things a certain way. And the same with watching us train. Well, why did he push the button then? Or why is she having that dog do that again? Just asking those questions while you're watching it happen allows you to process what's going on. Mm -hmm. So you started by observing and mimicking. And then what 
was there a time where you were like, I don't want to just clean and assist. Like I, you know, or I want to take that assisting to the next level. Um, so I think it was approached the other way. So if it was left up to me, if my, um, if this had evolved at my pace, I may not have been where I'm at today. You guys had came to me and asked, is, are you interested in more? And I said, absolutely. I would be thrilled over the moon to do more with dogs. Um, and so it came to me through obedience work. I really had to earn my way handling dogs in the field. Um, I didn't really handle any, um, essentially gun dog work other than like basic obedience until I started my own puppy. Um, other than handling your guys's, um, dogs, your personal Like the dogs. finished dogs. Yeah, Nick's, Vex, um, watching everybody train like that. Um, so I started basically because you guys said, Hey, you would, you have a knack at this. Do you think you would like to do this? And that's kind of the push that, that gave me um, the opening. Cause I, one thing that I struggle with, I think is kind of voicing for myself. So I don't know if I would have had the, the gumption in me to be like, Hey, can I also train dogs? Like I'm a little bit weak in that area that I'm afraid sometimes to get a no. Um, so if I would have asked and then it was a no, I probably would have been like soul crushed a little bit. Um, so I do appreciate that you guys came to me and were like, Hey, this is an opportunity. You might be good at it. And that would be one thing that I could say you could continue to improve Absolutely. on even now is just your confidence because yep. you are great at what you do. You're very competent. Um, you have a ton of experience mm -hmm. and just having the confidence yep. that you can do these things, um, from the beginning as mm -hmm. well as continuing on now. But that's one thing that we do when we see somebody that has a knack and ability um, and seems to have an interest, mm -hmm. we approach it. Hey, is this something you're interested in? Because I'd never want to push or force somebody into a position right. they're not interested in because you're never going to get the same result. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to always be that push, push, push to try and get them to take initiative, to learn more, to do things um, and take it to the next level. Otherwise, if you have somebody that um, you ask and they're like, absolutely, I would love to do this. And then they show you like you have through your own dogs and handling mm -hmm. and then self-taught and self-learning things on your own time. Um, that really proves that there's an interest there. And, um, that was one opportunity, uh, with fancy that we wanted to have yeah. for you is, okay. So we knew that you didn't have a lot of hunting experience, um, in the, in the, beginning. So obedience really was where you started. And I think that obedience is a good place for most people to start mm -hmm. because it allows them to figure out how dogs' brains work and get your timing down um, in situations where it's a little more forgiving. You mm -hmm. know, if your timing's off during a gunfire introduction, right, a little less forgiving than if your timing's off clicking for a sit. Mm -hmm. um, now, with that being said, um, the obedience training can get overdone. And I don't want to say get boring because you can still keep dogs engaged just like we can keep ourselves engaged in that. Um, but the excitement of what's next, you know, how do we apply the obedience to the field? Because I will argue that obedience is a huge part of field work. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's the recall, there's, you know, formal woe training. Um, all that obedience conditioning goes into like also building cooperation and that kind of bond or team mindset. Like, why is that dog turning when I holler? Is it because it 
cares about me? Like, or is it just running willy nilly in the field, which also happens? Yeah. And the more time that we can take to build that bond and the rapport with the dogs through reps and obedience um, allows us to have a better cooperative dog in the field. Now, mm-hmm. There is only so much cooperation you can bring out of a dog, depending on their natural tendencies. But um, we always try and bring out the best in the dog and take them to their maximum potential um, when they are here. So um, I kind of jumped in and said, you know, you didn't have a ton of hunting experience. And so I think that we should talk about that a little bit, about your previous hunting experience and where your hunting experience has gone since starting here. Um, so I was an only child growing up. So my dad's only daughter, um, prior to life at the kennel, um, I had went upland hunting one time and I think we killed two, two Bob whites, um, on some public land outside of Canopolis here in Kansas. Um, you didn't have a dog. So my dad like trudged through the grass. He did all the shooting. He picked up these quail and by the end of the day, he was just kind of frustrated and over it. He's like, this is why you don't go hunting without a dog. He also wasn't prepared to get a dog because I was excited. I was like, yeah, let's get a dog. Let's keep doing this. Um, so not a ton of actual hunting experience um, other than that one time, which kind of ended in tears because my dad's like, I'm not even going to clean these two birds. Like he was really over it by the end of the day. He thought it was kind of a waste of time. Um, But I did spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, I did grow up at Canopolis Lake. um, So running my dog off of a four-wheeler all the time. She was really kind of my buddy at the lake. Um, Just did everything with with a dog. So I didn't have necessarily a ton of um, actual hunting experience. But the, the, the joy of running with a dog out in nature did come pretty naturally to me. Um, so now it's just like, what are we doing out in nature? We have a little bit more of a goal or purpose, something that's a little bit more attainable. So having a dog that's bred for a sport that you can actually um, enjoy together has been really exciting. And that was why we got you into Fancy, um, mm-hmm. which was a puppy from one of our litters. And it was an opportunity that we wanted just to have from taking a puppy and raising it from puppyhood, eight weeks old and yeah. doing all of the steps through the steps. a year, um, approximately a year, a little over a year, I think fancy was, um, my first, my first time taking fancy hunting, we went to the same field that my dad killed quail on. Oh yeah. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Did you end up getting any birds? No, no birds. We found a dead turtle. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and that's hunting for you. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't find any birds. But you went out and you tried. Yeah, um, we tried. And my dad came along. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, it was really fun. Now you just need to do it again with another dog yeah, with your keep, dad and get keep, birds. That's hunting. Keep trying. Yep. Keep trying. But, um, that was our goal for fancy for you was to, allow you a dog that you could learn all the pieces, make a few mistakes because we all make mistakes when we train dogs. Um, Ethan and I have made mistakes and it's a learning process. And the more experience and the more dogs you work with, the more experience you're going to get, as well as the bag of tricks that you can pull out when a dog throws a curveball at you. But, you know, you need to start somewhere. And Fancy was kind of your um, carte blanche figure this out. Um, obviously we're here as a resource and to help you, but we want you to take the wheel and see where you can get with her running her through her natural ability test. (laughs) Hey, Hey, we've all been there. And then also, um, taking her hunting and, Mm -hmm. and working with her, um, and going through all those steps from low training, trained retrieve, which is all the things that, um, you have to figure out 
um, at some point. And if you're not a putting your hands on the situation and trying and you're just watching it happen all the time, you're, mm-hmm. you're never going to figure it out. Yeah. I definitely had it backwards than most people. Cause I started handling, you know, master hunting, master hunters and titled dogs. Um, so then it was like, well, let's turn the tables and give you the experience of now here's a blank slate. Let's develop this dog into something that can be productive in the field. So it was definitely, definitely an experience. And Honestly, that similar experience is what Ethan had to begin with. Um, he went and handled a string of dogs that were kind of trained and just maintained them at mm-hmm. that point and then start figuring it out. Um, and he's obviously a very successful trainer and you are also a very successful trainer and understanding the end goal with these dogs or the potential end goal and how they handle and what we're trying to accomplish through the training, mm-hmm. I think is a good opportunity to have a roadmap and a direction for saying, well, why am I doing this with this puppy at this point? Or why am I not playing with squeaky toys and tennis balls Mm -hmm. with this puppy? Well, we want a nice natural retrieve, if at all possible, without munching and rolling. It makes a trained retrieve process so much nicer if you don't have those bad habits. So um, with Fancy, would you say um, that it was an eye-opening experience, what you expected. Um, Tell us a little bit about that experience in more detail. So my first dog, Fancy, my first gun dog, um, I tried to do all of the things right. So I was um, very attentive to um, what steps in the, in the process we were in. Are we, are we making achievements? Are we meeting the, the quote unquote goal of where she should be in this um, roadmap I had in my brain. So arguably, looking back on Fancy Now, I probably overtrained that specific dog. Um, I did a lot of just overhandled probably a little bit, like because I wanted her to do all the things correctly and um, really kind of show that I can do all of the things. And I wouldn't say overhandle, like I ruined this dog or anything, but if she was the puppy I had now, I could read her personality a little bit different. Um, you know, it's like, just because I know what the rules should be. Well, sometimes you break the rules because that's what that puppy needs in that given moment. Um, so it, it was definitely something that I could look back on um, now and kind of be like, oh, well, maybe that was a mistake. In the moment, I thought Fancy was like the bee's knees. I thought she was super sweet, loving. Um, she made stuff almost easy. Like, so I feel like we made normal transitions through almost everything that I wasn't getting curveballs, um, where maybe some other puppies would have been. Um, one thing that I remember that maybe I said, her up for mistake was I used to let her ride my four wheeler all the time. And so there was a one opportunity we were doing like free runs with a pack of dogs and it was me and Ethan. And I don't know how many dogs we had personal dogs on the ground and fancy just kept trying to load up in the mule. And he's like, don't let your dog ride this, your four wheeler anymore, Jessica. And so like, now I know that that's something that can be done and it can come back to bite you in the butt. Cause really I want fancy to get out and hunt, but she's like, Hey mom, let me on the mule. I'm supposed to be What's wrong here? And that, um, that you can look back and go, yeah, I probably conditioned that improperly is, Mm -hmm. is really insightful. Um, it's the same thing that you can draw that same correlation with dogs and crate training. Mm -hmm. So 
when we have dogs that are puppies, they sleep in crates overnight, every night Mm -hmm. until they're not a puppy anymore. Mm -hmm. And then when they get the opportunity as an adult dog to hang out in the bedroom without being crated, they'll stay on their dog bed or I can invite them into bed, but they have no problem going back and forth because they understand the expectation. Same with our older dogs now. Vex, for example, he had never rode on the mule, the four-wheeler, whatever, as a puppy. A, we didn't really have one back then. We did everything off foot. Um, But now, as an adult dog, if I need him to load up on the mule so we can drive down to the other pond or do something with him um, that he has to ride on the mule first, he's happy to do that through obedience and place training. But it hasn't affected, like you said, his natural search because he's not been... And she had good search off foot, but it was like in that moment, she was like confused about what her expectation was. And that wasn't that she had done anything wrong. This was just like a, a conditioned thing. Like, woo, we get on the four wheeler and ride with mom. It's like, well, not this time. So just little things. And that didn't affect her long term. She yeah. learned how to yeah, she get got out and hunt it. off the four wheeler yeah. and do just free runs and stuff. Her. Yep. And, and make progress past that. Um, and you said, you know, you may have overhandled her. Um, well, I would argue you had a ton of experience with obedience training first. So that's yeah. what you went to when you were going to do all the obedience, working through things. Um, and then reading personalities, like you said, she was a very sweet, easygoing, very cooperative dog. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at Gidget, her mama, yeah. super cooperative, um, wants to do everything for you to please you. And that very much was fancy. Um, and so overdoing or doing too much obedience and not a le- enough like independence go. Yeah, I should have let her be a little bit of a wild child. Like she yeah. could have benefited from that instead of being like, oh, opportunity to do a recall rep into heel. Like because um, that to me, that was what I knew how to train. That was something that was important to me because I like a polished retrieve. Well, let's start it when you're little. Um, and maybe not. And, and, you know, had her a little more under your thumb. Mm -hmm. Now, certain dogs with certain personalities and temperaments, really conditioning that obedience from a young puppy on is also going to be really beneficial because they are more naturally a wild child and their weakness is that obedience and Mm -hmm. that cooperation and that, um, willingness to please us. Mm -hmm. And so maybe putting more obedience on those dogs at a young age would have been a good thing, which now you've had the opportunity with multiple dogs um, throughout the years of developing as a puppy um, from Guts and then now Sue V and Twister. And each of them have had their own personalities. Absolutely. And, um, and that goes back to genetics for sure. Because, and also you've learned differences of how to develop and raise them through the years. Um, and even Doc, he's different than Sue V. And, you know, you've got two young dogs at the same time that it's easy to make those comparisons now, yeah. especially with all of the experience you have leading up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is one thing that gets overlooked um, is the amount of experience it truly takes to be able to deal with the curveballs. Um, because if you have one dog that you've raised from puppyhood on and it was fancy, she was super easy, super cooperative. Um, and you would think, heck yeah, I'm a bird dog trainer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you get a dog like, uh, let me, 
I'm trying to think of another dog that we've had. Wildman Jax, for example. Mm -hmm. If if you had had him as your first dog, you'd probably be going, oh my goodness, where was I (laughs) going with this? What am I doing? I'm so lost because he was a much more powerful, driven dog. Um, And having the experience to pull on to work with that level of dog is important. And people make the mistake of thinking that dogs are the same. That dogs are the same or they have one easy experience, so everything's going to be easy. They're just, you know, now you're a bird dog trainer. Yeah. Um, And I also have the benefit of, like, working with litter mates. So it's like I got to live and raise Fancy, and then I also got a bunch of those dogs in at the same time and got to see how they were handling for for you guys. And Mac. We had Mac at the time. And you guys raised Mac. Um so lots, you can see similarities, you can see differences, like, well, what is conditioned behavior? What is just who a dog is? The genetics, yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. What would you say, I, you don't have to put a number on how many dogs you think it took before you felt more experienced and more comfortable, but what were certain things that you felt like you needed more experience on to feel confident not having us to help bounce ideas off of on the regular like I'm thinking woe training and um, trained retrieves are kind of those two places that you can drop those balls a little more um, you know but in all aspects of training you can see dogs that maybe aren't as food motivated and well now how do you train them and things like that well I definitely had you guys you know as a resource most if not all of the time um, it wasn't really no, what's Aiden? Three, maybe three, three and a half, three and a half. So, <clears throat> a lot of stuff happened in front of you guys. So it was like, if stuff doesn't look right, you guys are really good. Not necessarily just giving me the answer about, hey, try this. Um, you're pretty good at leading with a question, like, well, why are you doing that? What do you think is happening? Um, so it just took a lot of. Um, problem solving on the fly and seeing stuff happen, not only with my own training sessions, but watching you guys handle curve balls. Um, so I don't know if I hit a number, if a number of dogs gave me the confidence, it's just knowing that even, you know, your mentors are still troubleshooting each dog that they work with. Um, so I, I think that's just a big, a big confidence boost is that there isn't an end point that we are always going to keep having to to troubleshoot those, those dogs. Um, I definitely remember like certain formal training stuff, like train retrieves, certain dogs. I remember really well. Like I remember Mac, the Arthur puppies, little feet would get real sweaty and that would make my, my, I would get sweaty because it does take good timing and pressure and making sure that you are um, being appropriate with what you're teaching and you're not jumping steps. And that's a really good point um, that you just made about, jumping steps and things like that, but that your feelings, your emotions transfer to the dog and the dog to you, um, you know, like right through that toe hitch line or right through that lead. And we were both, cause I was still green. I was still learning. And it's like, well, I have a dog who's displaying his, like most dogs don't get real sweaty feet, right? Like dogs sweat for their feet, but Mac, for whatever reason, left little, like you could see that he was like, oh, we're working. I'm working and I'm thinking um, and not wanting to let him down um, in the same way. Like he's like, 
dogs want to please most of the time. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you recognizing, okay, he's a little bit anxious or worked up. And now I'm a little anxious and worked up. And it's important to be intentional and honest with your training session. And if you recognize that, especially now, mm-hmm. um, you recognize, hey, this session didn't go well. And we still have sessions where we're like, we didn't make progress, um, you know, years and years after training, starting training, you still have days where things don't go exactly right. Dogs have bad days. We all have off days. Mm-hmm. And you're like, today was an off day. Tomorrow's going to be better. And I'm not going to let one off day where I know these dogs are capable of doing this mm-hmm. affect how I feel about myself as a trainer or about them as a dog or trusting the process. Like that's part of it. It's like, dang, I feel like maybe I'm not making the progress on the the timeline. And part of that, like the timeline, will dogs learn stuff? Will dogs meet goals? Most time, yes, but it's also like we have timelines and goals and, and sometimes um, trusting the process is important because it's like, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere Ethan, come watch this. He's like, yeah, you're right on track. It's what it's supposed to look like. And I I mean, even Ethan and I still will bounce each other's ideas and I'll critique him and he'll critique me. And, you know, even if I'm questioning what he's doing in a sense, I'm like, what, you know, does she truly have a full enough understanding for pushing her to be, you know, doing this behavior and me just questioning him allows him to say, yes, she does. And say, this is why boom, boom, boom. And then I'm like, good. I I'm, I'm good with that. Then same as if he's questioning me, are you making good progress or is she just doing that because she wants to, or is she actually understanding Mm -hmm. the process? Yeah. That's important to, to pay attention to. And being, I don't want to say questioned necessarily in a bad way, but making you, like you said, think through the process and problem solve. Why are you doing that? That makes you a better dog trainer because, well, you're thinking about the process and going, well, where am I going with this? Why am I doing it this way? Should I have done something different? And you're actually analyzing it instead of just checking boxes and going, you know, well, this is step one. Now I'm on to step two. Well, Are you really ready for step two? Well, it's the next step. That's where I'm going. Well, no. Sometimes, like you said, you break the rules Mm -hmm. and you you say, well, normally I'd be on step two with this dog, but I need to go to step four and then come back to step two or or whatever. And and recognizing that each dog trains differently and finding ways to help each dog be as successful as they can. Um, you know, every dog kind of has a ceiling. We've talked about that before. Um, I'm never going to be an NBA basketball player. No matter how hard I tried or practiced, it wasn't going to happen. And some of these dogs have the same ceiling, the same cap. Um, and so we have to have realistic goals and expectations for them. But um, being able to analyze where I'm trying to go and how I'm going to get there and help the dog get there without pushing too hard or skipping steps, but taking a roundabout path to get there. Or assuming something is conditioned based because they have desire to do it. Like, are you collar conditioned to fetch or do you like to go pick stuff up for me? Yes. Um, that was a, that was probably a learning curve to, to work through is that, hey, yeah, it's not really because you cued him to fetch. They just are going and getting that retrieve for you. And I made that mistake with Nix as a puppy. He loved to retrieve so much. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, he is 
flying through this trained retrieve. I'm such a great dog trainer. I got this, right? <laughs> and then push come to shove when I asked something of him that he truly didn't understand, he showed confusion. And that allows you to understand that I made mistakes and he didn't have a full understanding. And then when you get a dog that has to go through a trained retrieve, not because you're working on advanced testing goals or you're trying to polish a good retriever into a for lack of a better word, perfect retriever. Um, you want a dog that fetches everything that you ask, holds it without munching and rolling, swinging into a heel, releases it when you ask for it. I would consider that a very polished retrieve, maybe not a perfect retrieve, um, but you're taking a good retriever to get there. Mm -hmm. Then when you have to take a dog that doesn't have any retrieving desire or doesn't want birds in their mouth or feathers in their mouth, and you have to work through that of you know, encouraging them, training them, conditioning them that no, you will be able to pick this up. You can pick this up. You can hold it. That's where it gets difficult because mm. you've got a dog that lacks a little bit of natural desire to do that. And it's all formal teaching. Yeah. And it's, it's going to show the holes that you might have had in your, in your process to teach that formal retrieve. 100%. So um, I didn't get a number, but how long would you say, how many years of experience? And it doesn't have to be a number of dogs because that's a hard number to put on it, but definitely years of experience with an average of 20 dogs in for training at a time. Like a month. start to finish, like where, where did I feel like I gained confidence in being able to? When you could take a dog and do the whole process, start to finish with them and maybe not the advanced testing stuff, but you could do a trained retrieve. You could do formal woe training. You could shoot birds over them in the field. Yeah. You know, that completed process. Like maybe, maybe like the last two years. So 2017, I think is when I started maybe, or Fancy came home and in that range. I can't really remember. I, I lose track of years a little bit. Um, I remember specific dogs kind of being like a turning point. So there were like Maggie and those litter mates I think I was doing most of that stuff myself at that point so shooting birds doing the trained retrieve um I wasn't really gunning for myself until you went and had Aiden to be honest so like even even though I'm I'm training and handling those dogs Ethan and you were still primarily gunning I would carry a gun often because that was like part of of assisting and training in to do this Ethan's like here's the old pink 410 that's all busted you're carrying it even though it doesn't shoot anymore um so i i think around that time frame um is, i i would agree I, with you we when i started doing it all a lot of time up until that point you know we'd hit the field and work two dogs at the same time yep. you're handling one i'm handling the other or ethan handles the other mm -hmm. and then when it comes to bird finds we would mostly be shooting, but you would still shoot. Um, yeah, would, it would just be more of like, uh, if she missed, we would take a shot or vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. And it it's a lot. So um, when people think about training dogs, there's so many pieces of the puzzle. So you're, you're handling a dog. You're making sure that your timing is correct. And when you're training a dog and not handling a finished product, there are more things to handle and make sure is being conditioned. You, your timing still needs to be really good because this is the place where they're learning and conditioning that. Then once we have done that process, that's when they go home to their families and with families that aren't necessarily 
professional trainers and handlers, they can still maintain that training with less um, perfect timing, shall we say. Um, but then you're also planting your own birds, you're shooting your own birds. Um, and then we have a lot of pictures and posts and things that we do. So then you're also your own personal photographer <laughs> where you're trying to get a good picture of a dog without messing up the training session. Yeah, that's um, important. I swear, every time you get a camera out, the dog does something that you're like, well, I just screwed up this session by getting my camera out. Yep. And maybe it's not because the camera got out, but it added an additional distraction for even us as handlers yeah. um, that we may not have recognized, oh, the dog is getting a little antsy. They're going to break yeah. instead of let me flush this bird, not worry about getting a picture. But it's a lot of moving pieces mm -hmm. to put it all together. Um, and it takes um, a lot of experience and time to get to that point. So I would say around the time when I did have Aiden, which has been three and a half years now, mm -hmm was when you really um, stepped up because I took a step back, obviously. Um, I was um, had a newborn. I pretty much trained right up until a couple weeks before I had him. <laughs> yes, <you did. laughs> Just kept me from busting my butt in the field one day, for sure. I don't even remember the dog, but she tried to take me out at the knee. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, and, and had Jess not been there with me, training together, assisting like we were, um, I would have been on my butt, for sure. Um, but... I remember I would watch story posts. I would watch things um, to keep up with what was happening in the kennel while I was, you know, taking care of a newborn, nursing him and things. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Ethan, did you just see this video? Just shot her own birds in the field for this dog. And yeah. it was really awesome. And he was like, holy cow, that was that step up that she took, um, that extra initiative. You had all the pieces. It was just um, you may not have had the confidence, but at this point it was like, well, Jess, <laughs> sink or swim. Yeah. Um, and you'd had, I mean, we just said, you've been working for us for five and a half years. That was two years of experience under your belt from caring for the dogs, reading the dogs, starting with the obedience, training your own dog from start to finish, um, and putting all the pieces together for all the other kennel dogs as well. And doing a lot of assisting and dual training sessions, mm -hmm. you know, I'd run a dog, you'd run a dog, things like that in the field together and learning from, from mimicking and, and being out there. So about two years in before you started really feeling confident in, in my skill, maybe still lacking some stuff. Like I, um, I know send homes were kind of a dual collaboration. Like Ethan would come in or you would come in and I, I would demo like, this is my obedience work, but still a lot of the field work was, um, your guys's responsibility, I think for send homes for a while. And that's again, because when you are demoing dogs obedience or clients come out to pick up their dog. It's dad day. It's mom day. Dogs can throw curveballs at you. And until you've watched enough send homes and know how to work through those curveballs mm -hmm. and explain this is normal and sh let's set up a new situation. Let's try again. Let's bring the dog back around for um, a break in the kennel, then go back out to the field so that we can show you what they truly do know. Um, and I know there are a lot of kennels out there. It seems like I hear about this a lot where people are like, yeah, I just went and picked up my dog and then I took him out to the field and I couldn't get them to do any of the things that they were supposed to have learned. And I think to myself, I'm like, well, did you, when you picked up your dog, did they go over everything? Did they have you handle? And most of the time or some of the time, the answer is no, they didn't show me anything or I didn't handle. And that's a big gap in that transition from 
training at the kennel to going home is transitioning that respect and handle to the owners. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have come a a long way. And I think that one thing that makes our training uh, unique as well is, like you said, you watched and you mimicked for a long time, Mm -hmm. which means um, we all have a similar way of explaining things, similar verbiage, which is important from a communication standpoint with our clients. Um, So there is no confusion. Well, just said it this way. You said it that way. I don't understand. Um, It sounds like you guys are saying two different things. Well, we aren't saying two different things. We just may have said it two different ways. Uh, But this way, everything is really cohesive. Um, watching how we do a send home, what we are making sure that we're demoing, making sure that we're having the owners handle how we're ask, answering questions that they ask, how um, we're interrupting people to be like, oops, stop that, please yeah, don't do that. Don't do that again. And doing it without offending people because they're excited to see their dog. They want to interact with them, but explaining, hey, um, the way that you're acting with your dog is encouraging the bad behaviors. And we've worked for the last three or four months trying to get past these behaviors that you came and said you were struggling with. So let's not let them just, you know, fall back into their old habits. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, your send homes, um, are awesome. Actually. I have watched a few of them recently and gone, wow, Jess has a really great way of explaining things, um, that takes how we've explained things even to, to the next level and makes people have a good understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and how we're handling. Um, I think that Ethan and I have been training for a long time and we started out, you know, back 10 years ago and things have changed slightly with our training process um, and slightly with our send home process. Um, If you're not learning, you're not trying. And uh, we continue to try and learn not only um, from outside resources, but inside resources. Jess is a great resource too. She's always looking and learning at new things um, and sharing that with us. And the same with us. If we come up with something or say, hey, did you see this video that this guy's doing? Let's see about applying that to the training here at the kennel. So I want to ask what your um, future goals are. We've got to get at least two more years out of you so we can beat the call center. I'm not asking you to put a number on it for sure, but what are your goals um, as a dog trainer? Um, So I'd like to do some advanced testing for sure. Um, I've handled quite a few like natural ability puppies. I've handled like a junior hunter puppy, um, but I've not done advanced testing. I've not done, I've not ran a master hunter test through AKC. I haven't done um, a utility test. I kind of just have so far entered the world of testing through these younger puppy dogs. So advanced steadiness work is something I really enjoy doing. Um, now I have my own very own puppy. I'm definitely looking forward to titling her as like owner handler, which hasn't been, um, how my scorecards have been read. You know, I've always been a handler dog owned by either cat or Ethan or client dogs. Um, so that's something I'm definitely looking forward to. Um, I'm also excited about just like, just test prep in general. I do like testing dogs, um, not just prepping dogs through training to go home and handle with, with their families. I like traveling to testing events and meeting people and kind of bumping elbows and, and seeing what other people's dogs handle and look like in the field. Um, so the, the testing network is, um, 
all people that truly care and have a passion for the dogs and the training. So it is bumping elbows and meeting people that have a very similar interest, Mm -hmm. um, whether they're professional trainers um, like yourself or just owner handlers. Um, And you may not have run any dogs through these advanced levels of testing, but you've got a lot of the pieces um, from the formal retrieving work and the formal mm-hmm. woe training and the actual, you know, steady to wing shot and fall training that yeah. you've done. Yeah, yeah. It's just applying it in a testing scenario, which right. yes, I um, know that that is another step and it is um, it's a benchmark I am looking forward to achieving because I haven't. Yes. And you're definitely going to be doing that <laughs> with sous vide and yeah. um, some other dogs and I am looking forward to Jess getting to the point where she's handling some of these dogs because we've got some more dogs coming up that um, need some masters and <laughs> utility tests put on them. So um, I also hope that you'll be able to go on a few more hunting trips and getting oh, yeah, to apply sure. all of the hard work to hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my Hunting to training ratio, my hunting ratio is pretty low in comparison. Like I've trained and shot a lot of training birds, um, but I I am looking forward to continuing to to go hunting and um, like even solo, like trying to get into birds on my own has been like a learning curve, like being like, well, what habitat is going to hold birds? Is this field worth my time? There's a lot of stuff about habitat that it, I I am hungry and ready to keep learning. And part of it is just getting out there and, and keep, keep going. And that's a really interesting um, insight is you don't have as much hunting experience. Definitely the dogs and the training standpoint is there, but you've gone on a couple hunting trips with Ethan and mm-hmm. he's always said, well, this is where we're hunting. This is what we're hunting. This is how we're going to set it up to yeah. hunt this. And then taking that experience and your knowledge of how birds work, because you do learn a little bit about how birds work when you're putting birds out and stuff, um, and applying that to public land and going, how am I going to hunt this? Um, should I even bother? Is there a food source? Is there water nearby? Is there shelter? That sort of thing. Something I've also been scared to do for myself is ask for permission from private landowners. I've, I've been scared to do that. I'll see property. I'm like, I want to walk that. But I've not been like, how do I go ask that person? I've asked Ethan how I asked that person, but that's not, you know, the whole step. And that's part of, I think, what I would like to do is like, just make sure that I can do all of the things and be comfortable doing. And all, having all the confidence and to the do confidence. it. Yeah, that's big. my biggest curve of growth is I'd like to see myself be more comfortable. I think those are really great goals. Um so I have to ask, what's your favorite part about being a dog trainer? So I like learning um, and troubleshooting. And I like that I'm in a position where I can um, use my hands and my body and be really active, that it's not like a desk job. I, I like that it's the exact opposite of what I was doing and that um, it's really rewarding in the sense like, yeah, I might be here a lot. Like I might be with the dogs a lot, but I don't leave here feeling like I wasted my time or something like that. Um, so even on the hard days, you get the reward of, of seeing dogs grow and learn and being able to, um, 
put them in a position to be a, a more enjoyable part of the family at home. Um, cause sometimes people are like, yeah, we have this dog and we live with this dog, but we may not enjoy living with this dog. So I would say that that's one of the things that I really enjoy as well is the, um, sense of accomplishment of taking a dog from point A to point Z and mm-hmm. allowing them to go to a fam, go back to their family and be a much more enjoyable part of that mm-hmm. family um, and seeing how impressed owners are. They're like, oh my gosh, I never thought my dog would have been able to do yeah. that. Um, even though they drop them off for training and they explain what their goals are, it's it's almost like their wishes for their dog, but they <laughs> truly don't think that their dog can do it. And then when we show that their dog can do it, it's um, a really rewarding feeling. Um, I also like what you said about you enjoy learning. And like we talked about before, you're always learning what, you know, even at the point where Ethan's at, he's still learning where mm-hmm. I'm at. I'm still learning. Um, and that growth allows you to be a better dog trainer because you're not set in your ways of, well, I know how I do it. Right. Um, and I like um, taking in new information and some of it may not stick or resonate with me. I'm like, Meh, I don't maybe agree with that. But that's part of of what this job lets you do. Like you can you can like there's the divided camps, right? There's like positive reinforcement only. And then there's like more balanced training work. And you can kind of slide that scale based on what you what aligns with you inside a little bit. So aligns with you and what you've been able to apply and analyze what works, what works. Yeah, if it's. And, you know, what works for us in our kennel with our primary sporting breeds that we're working with Mm -hmm. um, might be different than another trainer's philosophies. Or um, sport. Yep. That works in just different breed that they primarily are training. Um, So being able to determine what method fits best and being able to adopt other methods or adjust our training um, Mm -hmm. is a really good thing to be able to continue to do. And every dog does train slightly differently. Um, you've got a process, you've got, um, where we're at and where we want to be and how we typically get there, but there's forks in that path. And there's things that you can't teach. You have to develop or, or like hone and encourage. So I can't necessarily teach, um, motivation, but I can encourage it and I can harness it and I can keep like building that fire in a dog, but I can't necessarily force them to be excited to work. I can yeah, you can't force just... them to do the job possibly, but I can't make them excited to do it. Right. You can be like, well, I'm going to make you motivated by working you for 15 minutes every day. Yeah. 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 That's not no. going to work. <laughs> that's probably going to backfire on you pretty quick. But, um, that challenge I find makes the job not get boring too. I mean, every dog is a little different. Every family that comes in with goals is a little different. Um, and you get to help each dog make progress at their own rate. Um, and it's, it's a little bit different instead of the mundane tediousness of like punching numbers or something like that. There is almost like a little bit of an art to it. Like it's very easy in concept to explain dog training and timing, but it's difficult to, you know, pat your head and rub your tummy, like that type of thing. Like in practice, um, people sometimes for less 
suck like a little bit. And it takes a little bit of encouragement to be like, well, your timing was off. This is how I can get better. Um, so I do really appreciate being able to not only at this point train dogs, but also educate handlers and, and even other trainers, how I handle this dog or what you could manipulate to maybe get a better training session. So I, I really like, um, I like the growth that I've seen there that I may have not previously felt as comfortable to interrupt somebody like, Hey, what is that that you're doing? And, and approach it how I've been taught. Like, why are you doing it like this? Well, let's talk about it and see if that is truly why we're doing it. Um, so I, I do, I appreciate that part. Yeah. The overall education and learning standpoint, I think has always driven you, mm -hmm. um, not only as a dog trainer, but from your animal husbandry um, mm -hmm. side of things that you you're interested in learning as much as you can about something. And then you're all in and saying, <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. And however that ends up being, whether it's self-taught or, you know, lots of resources mm -hmm. diving right in. So we have our favorite part, but we also have to talk about what your least favorite part is of being a dog trainer. So it's almost the same thing. My least favorite part is transitioning handling to owners. I very much enjoy teaching people how to handle their dogs. Um, my job would be much easier if it ended there. Like, oh, I taught the dog and that is all that is required. Um, it's not enough to just teach the dog. I also have to uh, transition that handle to owners that maybe that it doesn't come as naturally to. Like even the act of just holding a leash in your hand can become the most awkward thing for people. Um, and a lot of it is nerves and I can relate to that and be like, well, this is, this is influencing your training. Let's relax a little bit. So trying to coach people through not necessarily that their handling is wrong, just to relax in their body and, and trust that their dog is going to do things right. Um, so, so that's kind of my least favorite part is having to transition, um, what I've taught dogs back to the family. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would agree with you as a least favorite part or maybe the hardest part. Hard. That's probably what I mean. Not that I don't enjoy it. It's just because you're dang good at it. That's Jess. the, that's the, the difficult part is making sure that that is happening well. Right. Because that is arguably the second most important part of this process. The first part is training the dog. Yeah. I mean, you can't, transition back to the owner and untrained dog and hope it goes well, but, um, doing the training, yeah. making sure it's solid with the dog. And then the second most important part is transitioning that home otherwise. And then, um, I'd also just like glanced over my shoulder at notes that I had wrote that, um, something is simple as like getting greedy, asking for one more rep, um, when I should have been honest with myself. So sometimes my least favorite uh, part of dog training is my own ego is that I will ask for one more rep when really I should have ended. Um, because that often leads to having to rehab maybe, um, a session where you had built yourself up, you got a little bit greedy, you asked for one more rep and then you're kind of behind, behind again. Um, so knowing, knowing when to call it quits is also something that, that takes, takes honesty in what you're doing. It does. And I think that it goes against a lot of people's natural instinct of, well, 
the more you practice, the better it gets. So let's just do more. And I, I like working with my dog, so I want to make good progress. So more is better. Well, it's not. And to a lot of people, and we found this through Patreon a lot, um, is people don't always think that a quality and productive training session can be two reps mm-hmm. or, or one really good rep, especially if it's something that has been a struggle. Yeah. And they go, well, that can't be a training session because it took 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Well, um, progress is gauged differently and measured differently. And, um, I would argue that one or two solid reps on something a dog is struggling with that you've made progress is more beneficial than working for 15 minutes, not making good progress or making some progress in that first, you know, minute to two minutes of the training session and then pushing for more and then having a dog that you've backtracked even more than one or two sessions, because now the process has become unenjoyable again. And it's hard for people to recognize that that short of a session can be beneficial Mm -hmm. and, um, that, well, you're not training my dog enough. I would think would be something that I have had to overcome. Mm -hmm. You've had to overcome. Um, Ethan for sure has had to overcome is, you know, we're training dogs for people and their expectation is their dog is getting worked and it's getting worked every single day, this many minutes in a day, this many hours in a day. And that's a common question we get is, well, what does, you know, how much is my dog getting worked? What are they working on every day? And, um, I always tell people, well, we are working on what your dog needs to work on and every dog is different. So if your dog needs a 15 minute training session, that's what we're going to use. If your dog needs a two minute training session, mm-hmm. a couple times a day, that's what we're going to use. And the other thing is like you mentioned in the beginning of, um, all of the passive obedience and passive training that we're doing all day long, especially the way our kennel set up, we're asking for impulse control type of behaviors when we're leaving our kennel space and when we're going in and outside and mm-hmm. when we're waiting for our meals, um, When I call you back from going outside potty, I expect you to recall to me. If we're to the point where we can heal up and down the aisles to go into our kennel run, we're doing that. We're doing name recognition for, you know, releases for letouts. So there is a ton of passive training that's always going on. And that is super beneficial because the more you're conditioning those behaviors in lots of different environments, the more solid those behaviors are going to be. And it's not just about having that 15 minute, 30 minute formal training session to make progress and to, to create the finished product, I guess. And you can like, I don't know what the graph would be called, but there's like an actual bell curve to like the more like stressful a session is or um, difficult it is like the shorter in duration it probably should be and that's hard it's easy to see it on paper but it's hard in practice sometimes to be like okay well that that is done good that's where we end this Um, and that's become more natural to me um, but it's taken a while and I think that it's partly because we hold some expectations of well I'm not working this dog enough well, they are getting work yeah. enough um, yeah. and working them too much can give us backward progress. Mm-hmm. So, And I've seen some of my best sessions come off of a period of sitting a dog. And that's something that has been like directly advocated by both both of you guys, um, Ethan, too. Of Yeah, just give it a week. Come back to it. Let it percolate. Work yep. on something else. Or 
in certain situations with certain dogs, literally let them sit and not work on any training goals um, other than that passive obedience and passive expectations. Um, and that's not to say that the dogs in our care and in for training aren't being cared for, um, aren't getting attention because there's other things from let outs and that socializing with other dogs at times, grooming, um, and, grooming and nail maintenance and, um, and you know, always interacting and socializing with the dogs. But does that dog need an active 15 minute healing session? Probably not. Probably not. And depending on the dog, sometimes definitely not. Yeah. So um, that's really good point and really good um, insight. Uh, I want to ask you probably the hardest question because I know about <laughs> your confidence levels, Jessica, okay. but what are you most proud of as a dog trainer? Um, so I think maybe um, being seen more as a peer more now. So like I've helped out in like a trained retrieve seminar, like that was a pretty, um, a big deal for me. Like, Oh, not only am I training and teaching these dogs, but now I'm kind of demoing what I know in front of people for their own benefit, for them to take, um, some knowledge that I have and, and practice that I'm showing in front of them and, and putting it in their own tool bag for ways to, train their dog or their future dog or even client dogs. Um, you know, I just had a, a dog that I sent home, um, for somebody who trains her own dogs and trains client dogs, but she doesn't do formal retrieving work. Um, she was like, yeah, I'm just not very talented at it. Um, so stuff like that. Um, I have a dog back in Kiba. I got to run um, the same day as Kiba and seeing like owner handlers succeed with dogs that I've I've uh, prepped for testing walk away, you know, with like a maximum score. That was pretty exciting because um, sometimes, you know, I get the feedback. Oh, your dog's the dog you worked with scored this. But I got to see that dog handle and um, see how excited his owner was. That was really exciting. I think those are really great things to be proud of. And I would agree with you. I, I know Ethan and I are incredibly proud of the trainer you've become and the ability to communicate what you know to other people, mm -hmm. whether that's clients or other assistant trainers here at the kennel and other obedience trainers, even other people that are the kennel attendants and explaining to them what they're doing is conditioning behavior. So mm -hmm. condition the good, not the bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Asking like, hey, you want to look at this session? What do you think of this? Um, I've had that happen recently. Somebody was wanted to see, what do you think of this heel? Oh, I think it looks pretty good. What's wrong with it? Well, the person I'm working with doesn't like it. I was like, well, I'll try this. Um, Charles. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll throw him out there. Uh, <laughs> and the other side of it, too, is having that peerage, if you will, to sit down and have a conversation and talk about dog training and mm -hmm. talk about methodology and say, Hey, how would you do this differently? Or I'm struggling with this dog, whether you say that to us, but I like your eyes on things too, because mm -hmm. you have different perspectives on, on dogs and going and handling brace work with Ethan to prep for masters. That's going to gain you even more experience mm -hmm. towards your end goals of running dogs. Yeah. Through. And I've had the opportunity to see not only you guys prep dogs, but also people coming out for consults, prepping dogs. Um, and I think that's huge in learning to be um, a dog trainer is you have to work your own dogs. You have to watch other people work dogs. And then you have to take away what would you have done different? Um, kind of put yourself in the shoes of that handler 
and that dog like what was the dog's perspective like sometimes that is also important well I was gonna ask you um, (laughs) (laughs) kind of a question about that but you're you're right and being able to watch other people train whether that's on a YouTube video in person at a consult or at a training day or a training seminar and saying I like what they're doing I want to apply that or I looking at it and going I don't know how that would work um, in my experience and recognizing, hey, I'm watching that and going, I think your timing's off and I'm seeing the mistakes that it's causing and the problems that it's causing. So just being able to analyze and evaluate what's going on in different training sessions handled by different handlers, different trainers, Mm -hmm. um, allows you to pick and pull and push pieces together that's going to continue to improve the way that you train. Even if that's watching somebody do it wrong, that also allows you to go, I'm not going to make those same mistakes. Yeah. And like part of what our setup is like here, like I train a dog to a certain, like we handle very much the same. Like even though every dog is different, um, I have no doubt in my mind that you couldn't grab any of the dogs I've been working with and take them out in the field and handle them. But what that would do is it would also give me a window into maybe what the, that dog is lacking or what you would think that dog needs some work on, um, which is something that um, me and, and the assistant trainer, Tessa, the it gives me feedback like, hey, have you been working on this? Well, this is my evaluation of what her heel session looked like with me um, and having like that the multiple points of reference on one dog, I think, gives a. Um, a unique perspective in dog training that not everyone has with their facilities or their setups that I don't just have me in the building. I do get you guys and um, all the girls that work with us too. Yeah. It allows you to have a true full picture of what that dog is because like we talked about um, previously, we're building rapport with the dogs we're working with. Mm -hmm. So if um, Tessa does a lot of the obedience foundation work and has really good rapport with that dog. And then you pull that dog out and expect it to heal to the field for its training. And it's not healing as well for you. Maybe that's because there is that dog's willing to work for Tessa a little bit more because of the rapport she's built. And there are a few little holes or a few little conditioning things that need to be handled so that that transition to owners or transitioning to another handler goes more smoothly. In the context of like, what drive is that dog in? Well, most of the time when Tessa's repping obedience, she's not working them out to the field to shoot birds. Like there's a lot of um, environmental cues that dogs pick up on like, Oh, just has a bird bag. She's got her gun. I heard the mule start like all of those really amp dogs up. Um, so just being in a different state of mind produces a different dog. So yeah, that dog on the average may heal really well, but you know, if you're healing out to the field or if you're, you know, off of training grounds and you're going into the the farm store, that dog's drive might, might take over and it may not heal as well. Because of the additional distractions and excitement that's involved. Um, but what you mentioned too, about we could take any dog and work with it is Mm -hmm. also very true because of the similar, um, handling that we have. All of us have Mm -hmm. the same style. And that's what, you know, at the beginning when you weren't doing send homes, you were doing a lot of the training. Then there was a transition period where we were handling the dog and then sending it home um, just so that you were still growing in those areas um, Mm -hmm. to observe and watch. And it was easy. We could just take that dog and do those things with Mm -hmm. the dog because it was fully trained and it was handleable the same way we all handle. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
that's that's the same thing now. I can grab a dog out of the kennel that is close to ready to go home and work through all of the things that it has been here to learn. And it's going to do them for us the same way. And there might be a little bit of like build that rapport. Yep. You can handle for me just like you're going to handle for your parents mm-hmm. when they come and pick you up. And it does add an additional um, benefit, I guess, having multiple trainers, multiple handlers, because that dog is already in the mindset that anybody that asks me these behaviors, mm-hmm. I can listen to. Yeah. Yeah. That's something we talk about um, prepping dogs in the field for testing. Like, should I woe this dog? Like, it's technically Ethan. Yeah. Anyone can woe you, buddy. Just. Stop yep. and stand there. And then and then that makes the dog second guess. Well, if anybody could handle me, this judge on this horse that's watching me could handle me. I better be on my best behavior. Yeah. So yeah. any of those um, little benefits and perks that we can give ourselves in the, in the <laughs> hunt test field is uh, beneficial. So my last thing that I wanted to ask you is any advice you have for someone who is interested in being a dog trainer? So I kind of jumped into that. Yep, but a little early, but I want to hit back on it specifically. Um, Watching yourself train. So you need to be aware that dogs read more often than what you're actually trying to convey. So if your shoulders are real hunchy all the time, like all of that reads to the dog. So if you can start to watch yourself train, um, I ideally with video. Um, you're going to start to see like, why, that, why am I doing that with my body? That's weird. And just like changing little stuff about like how you're presenting a treat. Like you can really, um, nitpick yourself like in a healthy way about how you are handling a dog. Um, I think another thing that is really important for new trainers, and this is like for everyone, um, is leash work. Like being competent, handling your dog on a leash or collaring your dog, um, you have to get your equipment on properly. Like if you're not collaring or leashing your dog appropriately, you're not going to be communicating with that dog um, appropriately and consistently. And that also goes back into your body language. Um, So making sure that you are presenting um, the clearest picture to your dog possible, um, you have to make sure that you can break down not only your behavior, how you are handling stuff, um, but that's that's where you start. So you want to give the dog the benefit of the doubt. Like, well, every time I cast the dog to his bed, he gets on, gets off again. Well, it's not the dog's fault at that point. That is something that you need to step back and evaluate. What was my handling sequence? What have I conditioned here? Um, so honesty is probably really a, a something that new dog trainers need to learn. Um, and that you're continually going to have to be on your own butt, essentially making sure that you're doing things that should be done, not just checking bar- boxes and getting complacent. Um, and kind of reach out, like see see who resonates with you. So if you have a training program that works like Cat and Ethan, like I have stuck with your methods because they work and they make sense to me. If it didn't make sense to me, Maybe I want to be doing this as long, but it's all been very natural and, um, and just works. Like that's why we follow the program is it's trustworthy. Like you can see results because you follow the steps. And if you skip steps, you're going to see that at some point. Um, if you skip the wrong steps essentially. So yeah, we skip steps if needed for that individual dog. And if you're trying to 
just check all the boxes for the dog because that's the program. Well, we got to do step one, step two, as you had said a little bit ago. Um, you might put yourself in a corner because that dog technically needed something, something different. Something different, yeah. So just being honest and evaluating each dog as an individual is important. Um, and know that not all dogs have been developed um, to learn how to learn. Like that is uh, a catchphrase. I don't know if it developed here, but it is something that plays in my head. Dogs need to learn how to learn. Um, before you can, ex- I know Ethan says a lot of times they need to learn how to be a dog first. Yeah. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's important. So, um, but the little things count, like how you deliver a treat, how many treats, like, um, you can really pick stuff apart that may not, uh, make sense for some people. Like they may not think it's as valuable as it is, but it is valuable often. I think that one of the things you said about videoing your training sessions, mm-hmm. whether you're sending to us on Patreon for us to help you evaluate, but if you're interested in being a dog trainer, watching yourself yeah. train, mm-hmm. you pick up on things like little idiosyncrasies that you don't even know you're doing and go, oh, well, that is impacting this training session. Yeah. You know, I'm talking too much I to the dog. I used to move a lot. I would move too much, like, especially with field work. Ethan's like, why are you moving way over here? Like, just sometimes um, knowing if moving is the answer or if not moving is the answer. Like, I don't know. Yeah, and we talk about it. Um, you know, I read your guys' report cards weekly mm-hmm. on how the dogs are doing, what we're working on, what our goals are for next week. And, you know, those babysitting steps, needing to get away from some of the extra footwork for a swing into a heel yeah. and and making the progress. Now, you can't go from point A to point B without any of the baby steps in between, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually when and how you move away from that so that the dog can still do the behavior without all those extra little steps in there that truly aren't necessary. And if you're watching yourself train and seeing a video of it, you're going to say, oh, I need to stop doing that. And Ethan and I have had the benefit of videoing a lot of our videos (laughs) for our YouTube channel. And we watch them all back from an editing standpoint and from um, writing up descriptions and things like that. And we're watching ourselves train. And it is very awkward and uncomfortable in the beginning, especially hearing your own voice. I'm like, oh my gosh, is that really what I sound like? (laughs) Um, But it gives you a really good perspective. And if you are honest about what you're seeing, you can make big improvements and say, I'm doing that wrong. I need to adjust. Um, or I wasn't being very intentional in that training session. I was just checking boxes, going through the the motions, but I didn't have an end goal in mind of this is where I'm trying to get in this training session. Now, like Jess said, even though this may be where you're trying to get and you've laid out a plan for this training session, if that training session doesn't go exactly as it should, you may not get to point, you know, the end of where you thought you would because you were too greedy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you need to say, well, I had wanted to get here and that was my intention, but the dog wasn't ready. And I need to cut that short. I need to modify what my plan was. But if you know what your intention was, you'll be able to recognize that it's not getting there. Um, or you can be honest with yourself and say, that's not working the way I thought it would. I need to end on a good note, you know, be successful with this rep and then call it quits and reevaluate, watch this video back and see what I need to do for my next session. So I think yeah. that's great advice. And know that um, when the bad days happen, you're going to be like, I know nothing. 
and, and know that bad days happen. Um, and just reevaluate like, Oh, it's just a session. Dogs are individuals. Um, but don't lose faith in yourself. I think like I've been very hard on myself. It's like, I, I am terrible at this apparently today. Cause this session went this way. This session went that way. I didn't, I missed all my birds that I was trying to shoot for this dog. Um, it's easy to kind of get down on yourself. Um, the same way is also that I think it's easy to be, uh, too, I don't know the word, think that you're maybe better than you are. Like also, I think it's good to be humble essentially. Like always. And that you don't know everything so you, you can keep learning. Yeah. And if you are just starting out and you have an interest in training, but you don't have a ton of experience, um, mm-hmm. not only watching your training sessions, watching, you know, maybe our YouTube channel, if those videos and our process really seem to resonate with you and your breed. Um, but reaching out to a mentor, maybe getting a job as, you know, a kennel attendant to watch other training sessions or going to lots of training seminars if you're up. Op- if you have the opportunity mm-hmm. to, um, to learn from other, other trainers, cause you all have to start somewhere. It doesn't just, um, fall into your lap typically. And, and finding people that you communicate well with or that you feel comfortable communicating with are important. Um, I've experienced like people talking at me maybe a little bit, not here, but just that is something that happens. So if you're around the wrong type of people, you may not feel like you're learning well just because you learn differently. Um, so step up for yourself. And find your niche. Yeah. Find somebody who's willing to teach you in a way where you can learn um, because not everyone learns the same. And not every dog learns the same. So, <laughs> well, on that note, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed learning about what it takes to become a dog trainer. Uh, Thank you, Jessica, for being on the podcast with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. So um, again, thank you guys for listening. Check us out on our social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, all of our YouTube videos um, are awesome resources if you're trying to become a dog trainer. Um, And Patreon too. Those videos that you're watching of yourself, we can also watch and add insight to if you're struggling with a certain step in the process. So um, reach out to us there at patreon.com slash standingstonekennels. And until then, we'll see you in the next video. (laughs) 